0: Log Talk Radio Marsha Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, and our producer, Marty Oakley. They provide us a forum to warn others about the reality of hospice, as well as other topics that many do not want you to know about. Thank you for spending your time with us this evening as we talk about some very important issues and have a guest speaker on This show was created due to a void of honest conversation and knowledge about the so-called compassionate hospice industry. I've talked to many heartbroken people who've lost their loved ones because they were just as unaware as I was when my mom was euthanized in Georgia in the summer of 2017. We all would have made different decisions if we knew what we know now. So we share our tragic stories and information with you so that you are not blindsided as we were, and you have the opportunity to save your loved one. It's about an intentionally broken system more intent on saving money than saving life. And for those who believe that hospice is a place where people go to die anyway, so what's the big deal? The big deal is that hospice was created in 1967 to provide comfort and pain relief for patients who could no longer be treated with medication or procedures, and were actively dying. It wasn't meant to enroll people who could be treated or who weren't dying and drug them into a coma with toxic drugs and hasten their death with the drugs and dehydration. And there is nothing painless, humane, or compassionate about what is occurring today under the guise of hospice If you Google stealth euthanasia, you will find more information in an excellent book written by Ron Panzer, who was a hospice nurse and saw firsthand what was happening and relays the history of how we got here. Today, we see how humanity has been brought to its knees and life has little value other than power and money. And so it is with hospice, which has morphed into a money-making conglomerate that saves money for the government with saving Medicaid and Medicare and permanently ending people's lives with toxic drugs, starvation, and dehydration because it's cheaper to kill them than it is to treat them. The business is so lucrative that hospice facilities are popping up all over the place, and you don't have to be in the medical field to open up one of these. One such case that many of you may be aware of is in Frisco, Texas, the CEO of Novus Hospice, Bradley Harris, had a lucrative position until he was finally caught enrolling patients who did not qualify, hastening their death, but the crime he was tried for is fraudulently collecting $65 million from Medicaid and Medicare, not for ending people's lives. And he wasn't alone. There were doctors and nurses who were willing to be part of this scheme and helped him enroll, and murder these patients. They have um, texts that were sent to nurses telling them, find somebody to enroll and make them go bye-bye. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that hospice doesn't have a place. They do, but they're out of their lane. Earlier today, I attended a funeral for my neighbor and friend, Bill, age 87, who just passed after battling cancer for five years, he had undergone surgery, chemo, and radiation, and experimental drugs, but he was still in a great deal of pain that couldn't be controlled. And he was in the hospital for two weeks. They called hospice in, and the next day he died on April the 2nd, 2021, on Good Friday. And I thought, did they overdose him, or did they provide relief from his pain? His wife and his family was by his side. And I had talked to them several times before, so they were aware of the drugs and the situation. They made an educated decision based on Bill's needs. He was in excruciating pain. He wasn't gonna get any better. So I think what happened to him was compassionate for his condition. And I believe he's a perfect example of why hospice does have a place in our society. For someone who is dying, a cancer or end-stage end kidney or renal failure, but can't be treated. But that also doesn't mean that they need to hasten their death. Somebody in our group murdered by hospice pointed out to me that her mom lived years with end-stage kidney failure, so because you have a disease does not mean you're a death sentence and that you're going to die anytime soon, nor does it mean that they have the right to drug you into an early grave. They are supposed to give a minimal dose to lessen the pain, not hasten your death, regardless of what your illness is. Everyone should have a right to make a choice to, be in, to not be in pain and be provided relief, but based on facts and not the lies they are told or no discussion at all. It should be a requirement that a doctor explain the choices to the individual and their family and tell them what the drugs, morphine, advan, Haldol, Seroquel, dilotid, any of them will do, and that you will go into a coma-like state, heart will slow down, breathing will lessen, and within X number of days or hours, the person will pass. If the person says, yes, yes, that's what I want, and everything's on the up and up. They know what's going to happen. They say they want the drugs. They sign for it. That's consensual. It's an honest conversation. And they made the decision based on facts. And, again, not to the point that you're giving them so much that you hasten their death. Just minimize their pain. That is not what we're talking about. What is occurring is premeditated, condoned murder. It needs to be reined in and stopped but sad to say, I'm not certain this is going to happen. So the best advice I can give, do not blindly trust. As for me personally, I choose to avoid hospice. My dad is 93, he lives with us, and he will not be going to hospice. And it isn't just hospice, it's hospitals, it's nursing homes, it's long-term care facilities that you have to be cautious about. Educate yourself before you need it. That's what we're here for, is to give you information and direction and places that you can go to to get information. I mentioned the Murdered by Hospice Facebook group that I belong to. Recently, a member found us, and she found us in time to save her granddad, Josh, from being the next victim. She and her mom had taken him off of Seroquel, Ativan, and morphine, and he was able to become alert, and he went home for two weeks. Sadly, he is back in the nursing home now. He has spine degeneration, and he is in pain, but now they understand what the drugs are, and he's being given minimal doses to keep the pain under control, not being sedated into a coma as he had been earlier. The point, had she not found our group and learned about the truth, Her granddad would not be alive. He wouldn't have had those two weeks to spend with his family. And he may not have a long time to live, but he got those two weeks, maybe three weeks, maybe four, and he wasn't drugged into a coma. There have been other members in our group that have found us in time. They've saved their loved ones because they found out what was happening. To us, these are heartwarming stories of winning against the corrupt system, And as Josh's granddaughter, Meredith, told me when she saw that her dad had improved, she said, I'm satisfied. And that's how I feel when I hear somebody say, they found us, they pulled their loved one out of that, they stopped the drugging, and their loved one lived until a natural death. I feel like we're winning one day at a time when I hear that. We're making a difference. On previous shows, I've gone more into the drugs and other facets of what's going on, the cost that people are saving, how much it's costing, the nurses. And I would be happy to share that information with you on those programs. You can contact me at MarshaJoyner2018 at gmail.com if you would like that information or if you have a story you would like to tell. But we don't have time to go over everything um, on each segment. Another resource that is good for the list of drugs and their effects is Halo Voice, which protects and advocates for the rights of the medically vulnerable. They have a helpline you can call with questions or if you're considering putting your loved one into a facility. That number is 888-221-4256, or if you're better with words, 888 221 HALO. If you're aware of the dangers and you want to help, they're always looking for volunteers to man the hotline so you could contact them at that number and volunteer. They have a sample legal life-affirming medical document that can save your life if you're hospitalized as well as other helpful information. I highly recommend that. Don't be fooled in believing that the elderly are not being called because they are. I feel certain, as well as many other people have stated, that those that were in the nursing homes that got COVID, that was part of a plan to eliminate them. Again, it's cheaper to get rid of them than to treat them or be bothered with them. And then I'll just briefly say this. With the shot that is experimental, it is also being given to the most vulnerable people, they say, to help them, of course, Everybody has their opinion about whether or not it's a good idea for anyone to take this experimental shot, and I'll not try to convince you either way unless you have questions. But if you do wind up in a situation where you're being forced to take it, you can contact LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org, who states it cannot be mandated. They also have access to pro life attorneys in many states, and they can help if your loved one is being guardianized or they're in a hospital or a facility and you're trying to get them out. So that's another resource. Another excellent resource that I highly recommend is a book by an elder advocate warrior, Michelle Young Doers. She wrote Killing for Profit, the Dark Side of Hospice. And when you read the book, you will see that hospice is dark and quite evil. Michelle was a hospice respiratory therapist who saw enrollment quotas and the so-called compassionate care, and she shares real-life patient stories and exposes the signing quotas, promises made but not kept, and patients' life being endangered. She stood up against big conglomerate who put money before humanity and lost her job because she would not accept that culture of mistreatment and death. And not all hospices are bad. We just don't have a list of the ones that are good. And if you have a terminal disease and you cannot be treated and you are in chronic pain and you cannot acquire pain relief from a doctor and you have to consider hospice, all I'm saying is know your facts and watch them like a hawk. The problem is not that people are uneducated. The problem is they are educated just enough to believe what they've been taught and not educated enough to question what they've been taught. Don't let it be your downfall. And it appears that no country is spared this inhumane treatment of the elderly. Even states that say there is no assisted suicide or euthanasia are actually performing these atrocities under the radar. Please keep that in mind. That when we're focusing on is people who are not actively dying and asking to die there is no consent for the drugs they have been given and since we have people listening from other countries and our speaker tonight is from Canada I'd like to touch on a couple United States assisted suicide now called death with dignity is legal in 8 states plus, United, plus Washington D.C. euthanasia although they say it is illegal, it's happening across all states. United Kingdom, Australia introduced the Voluntary Assisted Dying Act. The law gives anyone suffering a terminal illness with less than six months to live the right to end their life. But who's making that decision that they have six months left to live? In Canada, euthanasia is legal. It is called Medical Assistance in Dying MAID, AID. On March 19, 2021, the, the Canadian Senate passes Bill C-7, expanding assisted dying to include mental illness. This will allow more Canadians access to MAID, including people suffering from mental illness. Canadians who are not near death may now seek to die. A few months ago, I read about a young man in his 40s that was in a great deal of pain, but his doctors would no longer give him medication, and his only choice was to live in excruciating pain or agree to euthanasia. He was euthanized as his only choice. This is the world we live in. This is why we do these programs. Tonight, my guest is Robert Meyer from Canada, And he found our Facebook group, Murdered by Hospice, too late to save his dad, Robert Meyer. Robert will share with us what happened to his dad that led to his hastened death on February the 10th, 2019. And keep in mind, no matter what state, what country you're from, it is happening all over, but titled something different, but the results are the same, lost loved ones euthanized. Our vulnerable loved ones are being called for elimination and the government stands by, turns a blind eye because it saves money and it helps with depopulation. It is the biggest crime since the Holocaust. Robert, again, I'm so sorry about your dad and I'd like to give you the opportunity to tell us about your dad and your mom and what happened to your dad under supposed medical care.
1: Well, my dad, he's, he started out, uh, well, he was born July 23rd, 1931. So he was born in an era in Holland where things were very, very rough. In fact, when the Germans came to bomb Holland, he had to run from his home and the family got separated. And for quite a while, he had to stay in a Salvation Army home, uh, away from his family until the war was over and it was safe to return. But upon growing up, his own mother developed multiple sclerosis and he became quite the caregiver for her. And you know, the father was working and the other family was out busy, but he took an active role in more or less being her primary caregiver. And so he became very interested in helping others. And when he got drafted by the Dutch Army, he was so strong in his belief for helping others, and he was quite a born-again Christian. He believed in, Thy shalt not kill. So when he sat there in front of that draft board, he said, do you think that I'm going to pick up a gun and shoot my neighbor? No, I will never pick up a gun and shoot my neighbor, but you can put me in the medical corps. So the Dutch Army put him in the medical corps, and he became a surgical assistant with the Dutch Army. And then afterwards, he started working in a hospital in Amsterdam where he met my mother, who was working there as a janitor. They fell in love. They got married. And for their honeymoon in 1960, they took a boat to come to Canada where they can set up their new life, the land of opportunity. Well, uh, He did quite well. He managed to become one of the first registered nurses in Alberta. So he worked as a registered nurse, and then he also worked as a psychiatric nurse. So uh, what kind of behooves me is when he got sick and when we came to British Columbia from Alberta... You would think that he was a fellow brother or sister. You would think he would get uh, really, really good treatment because he was like a pioneer for male nursing. Oh, my goodness. Uh, He was diagnosed in Alberta with Parkinson's disease. And with Parkinson's disease, one of the drugs that you should never, ever get is a drug called haldol one of the reasons why they should never prescribe haldol for parkinson's patients is because it damages the dopamine receptors and parkinson's disease is a is a disease that's centered around the dopamine operation you know dopamine is the feel-good hormone and it helps for your brain to connect with your muscles to move them so uh when they started giving my dad haldol in British Columbia I put up tried to put up quite a big fight quite a big fight and I gave them the research from online uh gave them also the 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 recommendations from Alberta and in fact the BC Parkinson's Society out here Also says, you should not give Haldol to Parkinson's patients. Yet, they continued to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of spiraled my dad's decline here in British Columbia. Plus, the nursing care was just atrocious, the day-to-day nursing care. My poor father, he had an indwelling catheter. And the catheter care was horrible. Sometimes they would even clean him up, or often they would clean him up if he was fecally incontinent, without soap. Well, how do you, you know, prevent infection if you're not using soap? And he did not have an allergy for soap, so there was no reason not to use soap. It was just one of the things they ignored. And also on the leg bag, uh, 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 if you have an indwelling catheter, he would have a hose that would run down to his leg and it would sit by his foot with a little bag on it that would collect all the urine. Well, quite often they wouldn't put the little cap on the drainage port. Well, that drainage port is not just for blocking... uh, urine from coming out that's the third uh the third most common place for you to get a urinary tract infection it goes in through the through the drainage port into the bag and up to the tubing up to the urinary meatus and into the bladder system and into the bladder and it's a big mess and every time you get a urinary tract infection your baseline or your um, uh, your ability for mobility, your ability to move, becomes less. Mm-hmm. And when I brought that up, it was just one of the things that they ignored. And to my amazement, that became quite a pattern. You bring up a concern, and they just ignore it. That was my experience here in Uh, British Columbia, but this is a small rural hospital and not a big city hospital, and uh, whether that makes a big difference or not, uh, I'm not completely sure, but it seems like the bigger city hospitals seem to offer better care. Well, uh, my father began to decline You know, but I still wanted to take him home because he, uh, he wasn't, I didn't feel safe for him there. A, because of the day-to-day nursing care. And then B, because uh, if there was a medication that I didn't want him to be on, they still gave it to him anyways. Even the typical antipsychotics that they trialed him on the uh seroquil the olanzapine the Risperidone, they all had quite negative effects on him he was quite hypersensitive to medication
0: can i you ask know there your are those people can sure. I ask you a question, Robert? Um, during this time, was he lucid? Could he, if they had asked him, "Do you want these medications?" or "How are you feeling?" Was he able to respond and talk to them? Yes. Okay, so he should have been and, and asked. And he would often
1: refuse them. About it.
0: Yes. Right. Okay. I just wanted to know if he was like, you know, not capable of. Communicating, and he was capable of them asking him and him consenting or not consenting. So, okay, go ahead.
1: Pro- probably about 80% of the time he was uh, mentally there, very cognitive for day-to-day decision-making. Uh, there were times when he had a urinary tract infection where he was a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And one medication, risperidone, that they trialed him on, he actually turned into a babbling idiot. You know, you couldn't make. Uh, it was like he was always talking in the baby talk. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense at all. When I had them stop the risperidone, all that cleared up, and he was uh, he was clear as a bell again. So the even the atypical antipsychotics he wasn't responding to, and it also created for him a little bit of dysphagia. So he had trouble swallowing. Well, when those medications were stopped, he was able to swallow and eat normally again.
0: Exactly.
1: So it's uh. One of the things that they did not document when I got his, uh, his file were the side effects of the medications. Side effects were never, ever documented or mentioned in his patient chart.
0: Of course not.
1: Yeah, even when they started him on Dilaudid, uh, he developed an allergic reaction because he was uh, uh, also allergic to coding, and which means you 're kind of opioid naive and you shouldn 't have opioids uh, at all. But the first dose that he got of Dilaudid, he developed such a severe running nose it wouldn 't stop in fact, they called me they said robert your your father 's nose is continuously running." Well, can't you do something there about that? He said no, we don't have any doctors' orders to treat him. So I went down there. His nose was a my God! It was a constant stream coming out, constant. I went to the drugstore. Uh, I bought an over-the-counter spray. Sprayed it up his nose. It stopped. You know, well,
0: was your dad in why pain? Why were they giving him dilaudid? Was he in pain?
1: He was in pain, not from the Parkinson's disease. Okay. He was he was in pain predominantly from the day to day nursing care. Okay. So let me sort of describe this sort of pain, you have a hose that's going in through the man's penis, up the urethra, and that's very, very sensitive area, and one of the things that they were horrible for was always tugging and jerking unnecessarily on this catheter. And the other thing that they could could not get straight was the proper anchorment on the leg for this catheter. Now, quite often they wouldn't put the... Uh, well, up here they use an, ad, an adhesive paper sticky thing. And there's like a little Y point that's in the, the catheter connection in that Y point, it's like an upside down Y. So when you put, strap something through there, that prevents the tubing from going down because now it has a barrier to prevent it from moving up and down. I don't know if I described that picture clearly or not. It's a little bit difficult to, to, if you, if you don't see coffee. it to visualize it.
0: But it was causing him pain, and that's, that's where his pain was coming from, was from the catheter and the fact that they were not cleaning him properly and they've got it attached to his leg so that when he moves certain ways, you know, it would tug with addition with their tugging.
1: Yes, and then quite often what I had to do uh, probably about 95% of the time was redo that so he wouldn't experience it as much tugging. Mm -hmm. You know, I would bring in my own uh, catheter supplies and I would hook it up more properly so he wouldn't experience it. But my goodness, there were times where uh, I just couldn't believe the actual catheter care I've got pictures of uh, when they uh, brought him to the washroom. When they put the catheter bag straight on uh, on the floor. No towel, no nothing. And they don't wash the exterior of these catheter bags. So the chances of urinary tract infection goes up. You know, that. Right. It's it's it, it's horrible, you know. If you're a man or a woman with an indwelling catheter, and you are in the same hospital that my dad was in, oh my goodness, you're you're in for several urinary tract infections. And throughout my dad's stay there, he picked up several institutional uh, urinary tract infections. You know, and then, so when he has a urinary tract infection, you know, the the mental elements of the situation then increases. And uh, you get injection of Helbo to settle you down. You know, say you hallucinate more when you have a urinary tract infection. Uh and well,
0: doll is not – I mean, it's used for bipolar and Tourette syndrome. So they don't even use the right thing to give people drugs. They just kind of do a one-size-fits-all and throw drugs at them. They're anti and it doesn't sound like your dad was psychotic to me and needed that type of drug. And it just no, causes it, a problems. problem.
1: He just needed good quality environmental care. So my dad would sometimes get uh, sundowning. Sometimes when the sun goes down and things get darker, your mind goes a little bit uh, loopy. So what I had done, even when I had him at home and when I was in in the hospital with him, as it was becoming dawn uh, or dusk, I would make sure the curtains were closed. That way the the body doesn't know when to sort of act up, if it's going to act up at all. And often after I would close the curtains a nurse would come by, open the curtains up. Uh, So sometimes... You know, if you're looking out the window, you see a reflection in the mirror. You know, it might be yourself or it might be uh, another person that just kind of walked by. Well, for some people uh, with uh, sundowning, they might view that as something real, like a real person. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why it was one of the things that was vital for me to close the curtains. Well, often they would uh, open them up. I could never understand that. And there were so many things that kind of kind of happened out of, uh, you would think, was ignorance. But uh, at some point in time, you got to think, well, is this really stupidity? Or is this intentional? Right. You know, uh, uh, let me give you uh, an example. Uh, My dad would have uh, heel pain uh, from his restless leg syndrome. So then sometimes when he's sleeping, his legs move back and forth, right? Involuntary movement. Well... And then he also had poor circulation. So when you uh, want to increase circulation, you've got to increase the height of your legs. That's why they always say put your legs up. Right. If you have poor circulation. And ultimately, pass the level of your nose. Uh, so... I would do that. I'd bring in the pillows and I would properly offload his feet and I had little boots, uh, not boots, but like little ankle warmers made out of sheepskin to keep his feet warm. And I would come by often and I would see his, his legs almost on an angle pointed downward. And with his feet right up against the hospital bed. So imagine if your foot is right up against the hospital bed, and the frame, like the footboard, and you get restless leg syndrome, and you're pounding with your heel on that board.
0: Right, right.
1: Pray, you would think Did that would be somewhat common. Se- oh yes, there, yeah. there probably wasn't. Too many days, once I figured out how how uh, crazy this uh, institution was, there wasn't too many days where I didn't complain, often two or three times a day, about uh, uh, many facets of the nursing care. Uh, also, uh, just as an, a major, major example, uh, when my dad did have dysphagia which is difficulty swallowing well you're supposed to have him up at uh, almost a 90 degree position that way it's easier to swallow
0: absolutely well
1: and and he should be watched so there were some mornings when i couldn't get there for his breakfast but when I got there, he was almost on a 45 degree angle, eating by himself. Something that they should have put in, put in the chart, and and they actually have in some of these, uh, these little uh, areas, rules of dysphagia on what you should do. So they know about it. Yet, they, uh, didn't comply with their uh procedure on how a patient with dysphagia it does really make you wonder that even in those situations well are they meant to choke to death well what are they trying aren't they trying to prevent these sorts of things
0: and sadly i don't yeah. think so right And with them giving him, when you said they were giving him Haldol and Ativan, then in many cases that will stop the person from being able to have the ability to swallow. So they can also be adding to that that he already had an issue with it, and they're actually adding to that with the medications that they're giving him. And to me, his treatment sounded very inhumane. I mean, everything you're saying to me sounds like, they just didn't care, and it was very inhumane.
1: Yeah, and when they uh, made him palliative to get him off of all the antipsychotics and all the other drugs, then they, that's when they started him on Dilaudid and Ativan. And that's when he became so so hypersensitive uh it, it was in, incredible i couldn't even touch him and one of the side effects of dilated is hypersensitivity and the other thing that i i didn't uh, didn't grasp because he was hypersensitive hmm. One of the less more common known side effects of dilated is an increase in uh, uh, uric acid in the blood. So if you have gout or arthritis, that's often associated with elevated levels of uh, uric acid in the blood. So then instead of getting pain relief, you're amplifying the pain in the joints. And I showed that to the the doctor, too, and no, he didn't care. In fact, he said to me, Robert, when you tell me that the dulaudid is not working, to me, that tells me that he should get more. Wow. So... Instead of discontinuing it, they gave him more.
0: Well, Not when I was says, around. No, but as soon as you left the room. Um, it also says that dilated should not be taken if the patient has kidney function issues, a narrowing of a tube that empties urine from the bladder, or an enlarged prostate. And he had that. So they shouldn't have been yeah, given him that. Yeah, he had an
1: enlarged prostate.
0: Right. And they, it says specifically that you shouldn't be given that to a patient if they have an enlarged prostate. And yet they did.
1: Yeah. Right. And so, they just they just don't care because they have their own agenda.
0: And so it is deliberate. You said earlier you don't know if they're doing it because they're ignorant or if it's, or if it's deliberate. In that case, either he is incredibly ignorant and did not know that you shouldn't use dilated with an enlarged prostate or he had other alternatives. He already had made his mind up. And to give him more when you're saying it's causing issues is just downright cruel.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they they increased his pain. And then they uh, started... uh, with subcutaneous injections and because he was refusing the medication all the time. And they asked me, uh, I said, well, do you think these injections are a good idea? And uh, I thought this was uh, the nurse had told me that when you give the injection, it goes straight into the bloodstream and it's much better for pain relief rather than having to take something oral and go through the digestive system so you just don't have the efficacy. I said, well, that's maybe okay, uh, but you still have to get his permission. Mm-hmm. Well, when I got uh, the chart 11 months after his death and severely redacted, uh, they put in the chart that I said it was okay for him to get the injection, even though he refused.
0: Uh, doctored medical so, reports. They change yes. them. They modify them. Yes. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I that's couldn't,
0: you bring up a very good point, is the medical records. And I just want to say to our listeners that during a period of time, if your loved one is in a facility, as Roberts was, you, if you have power of attorney, medical power of attorney, you have the right to request the medical records why they are in the facility, During the time, you do not have to wait until after they have murdered them to find out exactly what they are giving them. Yes, they may be redacted, and as Robert points out, they were not factual. My mother's were not either. But you do have the right to ask for them, and at least it puts them on notice that you are paying attention, I'm watching, and you'd best do right by my loved one. It doesn't Mm -hmm. always work, but get the medical records while they're in there if you suspect something like this is going on.
1: January 27th, I had asked for his records. And uh, they probably knew that I was fishing around for more clear evidence for a malpractice suit. Because I had told them, I said, you give my father one more injection of Haldol and I will slap a malpractice suit on you. Okay. I do not want him to have Haldol ever mm-hmm. again. January a medical
0: 27th. Record. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: That was January 27th. And it takes time for these medical records to show up. They just don't do it overnight. They waited until after my father had passed away, and then they wrote me a letter, if you're not the executor of the will, we will not release them to you. So you need to also give us a copy of the will. And at which time I didn't have, I had to go back to Alberta and look for this will. And I found it, brought it back, and then I asked them for the whole file. Every single word that was written about my father, that's what I wanted. Everything. Right. Well, they didn't uh, give it to me. And then they said they needed more time. 11 months. And I didn't That's even get the whole file. They had the
0: to modify file. them. They had to go in there and modify it and take out anything that might l- make them look guilty as they were. Yeah.
1: So when I had a case management meeting about taking them home, so I'm in the in room. I'm in a room with the doctor. I'm in the room with uh, the the registered nurse and a couple lpns and social worker community care nurse and we had i told them that one of the reasons why i wanted this diluted and addevan injections to stop was because it burned going into his flesh and my father would scream for 20 to 30 minutes after every injection. Oh, my God. So when he was getting an injection, uh, Dilaudid, I think, was every four hours. And Adivan was every six hours. Oh, my goodness. The... The the, the screams of his pain still haunt me. Of course they do. I don't see how
0: they could do that, how they could do that and cause this man pain and know that that is exactly what was causing it because every time they gave it to him, he cried out. And they still would do it. And they have no compassion, no heart whatsoever. It just makes me yes. sick. Mm.
1: And they forced it on them. Right. You know, because it's no wonder why sometimes some of these elderly people are labeled of, as aggressive because they're fighting for their life. Exactly. You know, and if if antipsychotics are a standard of care mandated by the hospital that everyone gets them, whether you have a psychosis or not, they'll force it into you. The four nurses would go in, hold them down, and then they would medicate them. I, I... Is it any wonder... That these people have anxiety?
0: And that they're combative? None at all. None at all.
1: So that's a a big, big issue. Like, uh, I know we read all the time about uh, seniors uh, being combative, but are they combative for a reason? And, you know, some of the side effects of these medications and antipsychotics are aggression and hostility
0: absolutely and the sundowning that he had and a urinary tract infection and bacteria from them leaving the cap off of the catheter i mean they had everything going against him and they knew it Mm-hmm. and and when so you were trying i'll give to you correct a little him,
1: bit of I'll give you a little bit of a little bit of history behind this hospital um, even before I moved here, the government wanted to close this hospital down because it wasn't making any money and because it was running as an active an active treatment hospital. Well, if you want to make sure your hospital is making money, you have to make sure those beds are full. And the way that they make these beds full is unbelievable. Uh, every patient that I walked in and seen almost in the hospital, like 95 98%, was a totally dependent senior.
0: Well, is there hospital in Canada... I mean is that is it kind of like a nursing home also because typically yeah. if somebody's in the hospital they're being treated and they want to get them out and then they go to either a long-term care facility or a nursing home was in Canada is is yours different that your hospital actually has wings where you use it like a nursing home or a long-term care?
1: Well, the, uh, the particular hospital that my dad was in had a couple units for active treatment. Then they also had a hospice wing, and then they had a transitional wing. And that transitional wing was meant for uh, if you were waiting placement to go to long-term care.
0: Okay, which was your father and
1: in? That, uh, My dad was in the acute care, and then he went into the transitional care. Okay. But here's, here's the thing that it was with my dad. It, uh, be, I think because of the Haldol and his decline, he became a one, more than a one-person assist. So oftentimes he was a two- and a three-person assist. So when you're shopping for clients for your long-term care center, and you're basing your model on a one-person assist, as soon as you see that two or three-person assist, are you gonna pick that person?
0: Mhm. I see your point.
1: So I saw, I saw people going that came after my father going to long-term care places. But my father wasn't moving. So it kind of made sense to me that he wasn't going to get cherry-picked to go to a long-term care center. Right. Which I really didn't want him to be in long-term care, but they had me believing that because I was a diabetic, that... Uh, I might not have been the best choice uh, as a caregiver at that time. Let's well, say I go into a low blood sugar spell, uh, and I did have some. What would my dad do in the house to, to help me? That was the basic of the theory. But once I got my uh, uh, diabetes under control... So I was 100% in the target range. That's when I wanted to take them home. And it's unfortunate that I went as a patient to that same hospital, and they didn't give me the proper insulin treatment uh, for my uh, diabetes. And that's why I was having so many low blood sugar spells, because they didn't teach me the carbohydrate to insulin ratio. This is how much you should stab yourself with of insulin, and that's it. So not the right model. No. But uh, so I had to go to uh, Vancouver, which is on our mainland, uh, to get proper treatment for uh, diabetes control. But now I'm off insulin. I don't take any insulin at all, and I'm doing fine.
0: That's great. Yeah. That's great. So, so you tried uh, to take your dad th- home at one point when you were meeting with them in the case management meeting?
1: In the case management meeting. And we had decided that because of uh, the Dilated and the Antivan injections were burning and causing him so much pain. That they would try them on the fentanyl patch. Just transdermal. So there would be no, no injection at all. And that plan never materialized because nowhere in his charts, uh, did they say that they tried the patch, the fentanyl patch. They kept on with the dilated and the Advan injection.
0: And how long and, did that go on? Is that like five or six days that he was getting that every four to six hours?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, until he died on February 10th. So, you know, we had our case conference on February 5th and I came out. He was already sedated. And, you know, it was the cruel thing was, of course, they never told me. I kept sitting there for hours on end thinking that he might wake up. And they kept sending his meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, they knew he wasn't going to wake up, but I didn't. Right. And if I knew he was going to wake up, then uh, I would have went there with the police or whoever and got them out.
0: But you don't know, and they do not tell you the truth. They do not tell you what the plan is before they start it, during the process. And in actuality, when you ask the questions, they either omit the truth, evade, or they directly lie to you about what is going on. And that's what they did to you.
1: Yeah. And then uh, you think they, they tell you, you know what? They sleep a lot before they die. That's common. It's a coma. Yeah. It's a
0: coma. You yeah, will sleep a lot the, before you die. But they don't die. tell
1: you the reason.
0: No. No. Yes. And tell this too about, because you and I have talked about this, um, the left
1: Well, when uh, I went to see him uh, on the morning that he passed, they had him on his left side. So I got there at around uh, 7.15 in the morning. Mm -hmm. Little did I know that at 6.40... They had given them injections and they did not calculate or record how much dosage they gave him. Normally when you uh, give out a medication, you're supposed to record the dosage. Correct. There it just says dilated adivan given. and sometimes i would read as per doctor's instructions instead of the instead of the amount but uh, the last uh, entry there for those injections was nothing so how do i know but that how was much the kill shot that they gave him
0: that's true and yeah. to, for the audience if you don't know there is the thing they call the terminal left turn and turning someone on their side at that particular state of the game um, when it's near the end, turning them on the left side makes it hard for them to breathe, and they die. And that's yes. what they did to your dad. That's it, exactly it what they did
1: to my dad. It
0: is horrific listening to story after story, and they all have different nuances but they're all the same. The treatment of the patient, the drugs used sometimes are a little bit different, but the result is the same. And Mm -hmm. the intent of what happens in the end is murder. And these people know what they're doing. This is not by some instance that all of us, oh, no, I didn't know that was going to happen. The drugs make it happen. The... As you said, they were sending food in there, but he wasn't eating or drinking. They die from the drugs and dehydration. You can't live, but you can live 8 to 21 days without food, without water or any hydration, three days max. And especially Mm -hmm. since your dad was opioid naive. Yes. So, you got the medical records after eleven months, and you are still searching for somebody to investigate. And can you tell us about that, who you went to and what you tried to get justice?
1: Yes, I had uh, once I got the uh, the reports, I was still a little messed up because that's when the the revelation came to me. Oh, they kept on with these injections. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's what killed them, because they did not do what they said they were going to do. Right. So I that was a big revelation to me. So I wrote. Uh the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and uh said, "Well, this is what happened. Why you know uh this needs to be investigated. So I made complaints against four different doctors because there uh in this institution, they don't have regular staff doctor, they have a doctor. That works there for a week, and then he's in the community for six or seven weeks. So they they have almost like a two month rotation of doctors. So you only see a doctor for a week, and then you get a new one.
0: Hmm. Continuity. So there's no
1: continuity there. Yeah. Right. So yes, Uh, and the College of Physicians and Surgeons cleared all four of these doctors and, and, the, and the 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 lie uh, that really wanted uh, sticks out into me was they never told me that my father for five days straight did not have a bowel movement and he was not offered any sort of laxative to help with that. Well, with narcotic constipation, the uh, laxative of choice is called laxolose. Mm-hmm. They right. never offered that to him. But the doctor wrote that in his report that it was offered to him. And oh, I was and so there now, most of the time.
0: So now that he supposedly refused it, then that's documented, and they 'll listen to his refusal of that, but they would not listen to his refusal of the dilated or the avant Now, How much sense does that make? Listen to him one time but but none other times and And I understand what you're mm-hmm. saying that after this happens, you're in such shock, and you knew when it was going on that something was deadly wrong. You tried to fix it. You tried to keep them from doing this to him. They ignored you. You didn't find that out until you got the medical records later. But you are in such a panic state. You're angry. You're disbelieving. You're in total shock. And that's what people don't seem to understand when they make comments like, Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but your dad lived a long life, Um, you know, it's over, it's done, get over it. No, we don't get over something like that. If you were carjacked or somebody broke into your home and shot you, everybody would be shocked and, and, you know, I'm so sorry this happened. But because it's an elderly person and because they were in a hospital or in hospice, then to other people it's like, I mean, they lived a good life, get over it. No, they were murdered. That's what people don't seem to get. They were murdered. We're not talking about somebody who died of natural causes. My loved one was murdered. No, I won't get over that. No.
1: Yeah. And then the so other step the I right made thing. was I made I made uh, two complaints uh, to the BC Human Rights Commission. And they had just sent me back uh, letters saying that they don't find no uh, evidence of discrimination. Now, but and I want to tell you about that. Uh, they they not just discriminated against him because of his Parkinson's. They had asked me, the doctor had asked me, before they started this uh, Dilated and Adderan. A cocktail they said what do you want to see happen to your father and then i looked right down at my dad and i said dad what what do you want to see happen and they were kind of asking about his end of life well he didn't say much of anything when the social worker came in and asked him uh, Mr. Mayor, do you want to leave this hospital? He says, yes, I do, because this hospital is abuse. So why would I want to stay here any longer? Right. So my daddy wanted to come home.
0: Sure he did, yeah. But they didn't let and
1: him? When I No. You know, they didn't have any intention of ever letting them come home. That whole case management uh, meeting about me coming home—that was all staged for my benefit or manipulation.
0: Probably just to shut you up, to appease you. Yes. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah.
1: But getting back to uh, the conversation I want—I had with the minister because I. I wanted to really make sure that I made the right decision. You know, and also respecting my father's spiritual beliefs. So I talked to the minister, and he said, who used to also be an undertaker, he says, Robert, one of the things we want to do is we don't want to prolong their suffering, yet we don't want to hasten their death. That was his advice to me. In when I talked to the doctor again, I relayed that. We don't want to prolong his suffering, and we don't want to hasten his death. And because my dad is a devout, born-again Christian, we believe in an open system where God can maybe perform a miracle up To the last minute, and for that, he to exercise his faith, he needs to be awake.
0: Right. So it sounds like to me. So as the pattern. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it sounds like the doctor. Yes go ahead we we have delays for our listeners. There's always a delay in in our speaking. No, you go robert i was just
1: I was just gonna say, as it was their pattern with his care in with medication, they just chose to ignore it, so from the cradle the grave of his care in that hospital most things were just ignored
0: they were Um, I was going to say that the doctor when he asks you what do you want to happen to me it sounds like what he was asking is do you want us to end his life And that's what's very frightening because a lot of um, children in some cases, spouses in some cases, do not want to be bothered anymore with an elderly person who requires more assistance. And so when a doctor asks that, you know, if the loved one says, I just want it to be over, what you have just said is you have just given them permission to end that person's life. And it may not be what your intent was when you say that, but that is the way they're reading it. And so questions that they ask, you have to, you know, almost be a wizard. What do they mean by that? You know, what are they trying to get at? It's, you know, like when they um, take a patient in and they uh, – elderly patient and they ask them what am I holding in my hand because you, know, you have a writing pen or they ask you, you know, what time is it on the clock or they ask you to you know, say a word or spell a word backwards. They're looking for cognitive abilities but what they're doing is they're trying to determine whether or not they can list you as you have dementia and that has become a big catch-all now in our society that if a person has dementia oh well you know that's one let's mark them ready because they're going to be going down that path soon too and i hate to say that but we look at people now anybody over i don't know marty and i've tried to figure out what the the sweet spot is anybody over 70 anybody over 75 at that age that they They've lived their life, and now it's okay for them to die. They're done. That is not the way that anybody should be looking at society. Everybody has a right to live until they die of a natural death.
1: Well, and and they robbed me of that time. They did. They robbed me of that time.
0: Well, they robbed your dad of you know. being able to talk to you during that time and let you know, you know, say that he had two weeks, if he had two months, six months, they don't know because they didn't give him the opportunity to get better, to be able to go home and to spend his last days, weeks, months with his son in your home and in a loving environment. They stole it from both of you.
1: Yeah, and I never even got to say goodbye to him.
0: No. And and I am so sorry, and I'm I'm sorry for you, I'm sorry for all the people that I have talked to that have gone through this, and there is no justice. And when I speak of justice, I'm not talking about a monetary justice. Who cares? None of us are looking for that. We're looking for someone to say, yes, what was done to your loved one was wrong, and we're going to stop it, and we're not going to let that happen to other people. That's what we're looking for. And that's not happening.
1: Mm -hmm. And you know what was uh, coincidental? As I'm doing the the research on, uh, uh, on his death, on the, I came across the recipe. This same kind of recipe is what they use to end the lives of COVID, people that have contracted COVID. The same, same drugs and the same pathway. The same dosage. So to me, you know, uh, I have to question, and and I know it's going to be somewhat controversial. How many of these people that have died in long-term care centers, did they die of the COVID or did they die of palliative sedation till death? I'm with you, 100%.
0: That's My thought is the same thing. And we don't know because people were not allowed to get into the facility Mm -hmm. to see their loved ones. And nobody did a toxicology report because they assumed that they were being told the truth that your loved one died from COVID. Really? Let me see a toxicology. What did you give Mm -hmm. them? Why was hospice called in because it was stated they were familiar with the dying process and they could help nurture the patients and deal with the supporting the families. No, uh-huh. they could bring in their little testy care kit that has all of those toxic drugs in it, the ham sandwich, as it's called often in the United States by hospice nurses who think they're funny, Howdall Ativan, and morphine. Mm. Uh, so I'm looking at what you yeah. what you sent me on. Um, it's symptom management for adult patients with COVID-19 receiving end of life supported care outside of the ICU. And Robert is yeah. right when they talk about this. Um, it's got patients not already taking opioids, meaning opioid naïve, and it lists morphine, hydromorphine. And then it has patient already taking opioids, so you would give them a much higher dose of that. And for all patients, other medications used, lorazepam, metazolum, and methotrimaphazine. And they talk about respiratory secretions, congestive near end of life. All of the things that Robert is talking about is true. Those are the same things that they use to manage COVID-19 patients. So you're right. Yeah. I, I believe that these the, pe- the people in the nursing homes and this long-term care facilities, I believe it is another way of calling our elderly. And I believe it is all part
1: of the plan. Well, an an interesting study came out. Yeah, an interesting study came out uh, from our federal government as it came out in January or February, thereabouts of this year. And it said, since our legalization of medical assistance in dying Health care costs have gone down, and I think to myself, "You need a study for that?
0: Mhm
1: Once a person is dead, there's no ongoing costs no so clearly no that sends sends a message that they want to kill people because it saves money,
0: exactly. And that is what they're doing. That is the intent. And it saves money for Medicare and Medicaid. And people are getting rich off of creating facilities to mm. murder people. And the price that mm. is paid is our loved one's life. Because these people don't care. Yes. They don't have sleep And that's with another night. thing.
1: That... Yeah. And that's another thing about our province of uh, British Columbia. The family compensation laws and for cases like wrongful death, they haven't been updated in like almost a 100 years. So when they look at an elderly person that's not an income earner, they have deemed that their life is worthless. So when you start shopping for a lawyer to take on a a situation like this, they often don't want to take it on because there's no monetary compensation that can be gained because it was the life of someone that's worthless. Yet we don't see it as worthless no. we see it that's our mother and their father and their husband and their wife and these are people that we love dearly and we want to cherish every moment with them
0: right right well i can tell you that they will not take cases i went to at least at least a dozen attorneys and everyone said we're really sorry and please continue to try to find someone you know, to take your mother's case, but, you know, we can't do this. Finally, one attorney said, it sounds to me like you've gone to several attorneys, and I said yes, and he said, do you want me to tell you why they don't take it? Because hospice has MassMutual as their insurance company, and they do not settle out of court, and it would cost us more money than we could ever get to take the case, and that's why nobody will take your case. So you're absolutely right, it is based on money It's not based on humanity It's not based on ethics Or morals It is based on financial That's it
1: Yeah, and our government Is so So aggressive with that Uh, And our provincial government Too, like we had A uh, hospice out here The Delta Hospice Faith-based hospice, so with Christian values, and they believe also in thy shalt not care. Well, their funding came up this year from the government, and our minister of health said, if you don't offer euthanasia, we're not going to fund you anymore. So then the hospital said, okay, we'll go back to our traditional roles of fundraising even before we had government funding. Well, the uh, Minister of Health, Adrian Dix, that's our Minister of Health here, he said to that hospital, you don't quite get it. If you don't offer euthanasia, we are taking over your hospital. And that's what they did. So now that Delta Hospital is now in the hands of the BC government.
0: Wow. Shut down because they would not kill people.
1: Yes. Wow. That's, isn't that something, eh? Just to save a buck.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly, um the other thing that you you had talked about was the um that I wanted to swing back to was I don't want to say the circle, but um, is when you were talking about the continuous palliative sedation therapy, which is known as terminal sedation, and I had never heard of that, obviously because I'm not in Canada, but when I looked at the, looked that up, it states that you must talk to the patient and their family, and if the patient can't comprehend it, you must talk to the family and let them know what that means. And it is only supposed to be used when the patient has two weeks or less to live and their symptoms are refractory, meaning that all other appropriate treatments have been tried and have failed. And you were never notified that they were going to do this Your dad was never notified, and there was no consent at all. And they talked about if this was used to hasten death, then that would be illegal because that would be considered euthanasia. So Mm -hmm. they want to make sure they don't call it that because if they did, then it would be considered euthanasia and then charges would be brought against them.
1: That's correct, yeah. But even then, if if you had those threat of charges, when I went to the police and laid my uh, story out that they murdered my father, and it should be investigated as murder, they came back to me and said, it's hard to find intent. Your dad, he wasn't in the best of shape. And we don't think that there was intent. So up here in Canada, there's two parts to a crime. There's what's called the mens rea and the actus rea. The mens rea is the mental intent. So the appreciation of the act that you're doing and the outcoming consequences or circumstances Well, if you're using palliative sedation till death or terminal sedation, you know that outcome is death. So how can they say that there's no intent? So the other part is the criminal uh, justice system out here does not want to take on the expertise of the medical system. And, of course, everything that the medical system is uh, like it was written in the Bible or God's truth. You know, just like when they document something in the chart, all of a sudden, even if it's a lie or if it's uh, a half truth, you know, when it goes to court, they're going to look at the chart and say, this is the truth, what's written in the chart.
0: Because we are conditioned to believe that the medical field is compassionate and that they are still going by the HIPAA law, and they are not. The Hippocratic Oath means absolutely nothing today in the medical field. So, um, Robert, I appreciate you telling your dad's story tonight and you've given us a lot of information, a lot of things that I was not aware of that you and I talked to earlier, and hopefully our listeners have garnered information from this, and our entire purpose is to try to keep you from experiencing mm-hmm. what Robert and our other guests have experienced. That's our goal, and we hope we've met that. In two weeks, Alex Schattenberg from the Canada Euthanasia Prevention Coalition will be our guest speaker, and he will be speaking about what's going on in Canada and the new laws that they have and how that's affecting the people in Canada. And we are closely aligned with them. Even though euthanasia is legal there, it's not here, but it's being practiced worldwide. So, Robert, um, I'd like to give you Anything you want to say as closing out?
1: Well, I just want to say that uh, I'm thankful for your your programs because you educate people that maybe this won't happen to them. And uh, I think that's tremendous. I think that really is. And that's where the, the war is going to be won is... Uh, public education so i really have to applaud you and your program and your group
0: thank you thank you and well it wouldn't be we wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for people like you who agreed to come on the show and to give us the education by telling us what happened to your loved one so i appreciate you coming on and sharing that i know that you're not over it yet and you know, mine was 2017. I'm not over it, and I none of us ever will be, and we just seek
1: mm-hmm.
0: to help other people. That's kind of the goal, and I thank Marty for giving us the forum to do that because there's an awful lot that she does in the background that has to be done prior to us being able to get onto the programs, so a shout-out to Marty for um, taking care of us and making all of this happen, giving us this opportunity. So until two weeks from now, I'll say good night to everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us tonight. And I hope you garnered something from this and that it will be helpful. Remember the resources that I gave you. You can always contact me if you didn't write them down. You can re-listen to this. All are archived. Again, my email is MarshaJoyner, that's J-O-I-N-E-R, 2018 at gmail.com. Have a good week, everybody else. Take care. Good night, Robert.
1: Good night.